This is the Cubicle Renegade podcast session number 21. Welcome to the Cubicle Renegade podcast, where unfulfilled desk jockeys become fearless entrepreneurs. Learn from corporate escapees and world changers who are successfully building businesses that matter. Here's your host, Caleb Wojcik. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me here on another session of the Cubicle Renegade podcast. Today I'm joined by Josh Kaufman, who's the author of both Personal MBA and more recently, The First 20 Hours. We talk about rapid learning, whether or not you should go to school for business after undergrad, and just a whole bunch of topics. So let's just dive right into this episode. Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Josh Kaufman, who is the number one international best-selling author of both Personal MBA and more recently, his new book is The First 20 Hours. Thanks for joining me today, Josh. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. And and the listeners can't see us, but if they could, they might think they just turned into the Bald Man podcast because <laughs> both of us are a little follically challenged and we keep our hair really short. And, and you're not my first bald guest. I had James Clear on for session 10, um, but... I guess enough enough about hair. Let's get into like why you're actually here. So you're an advocate of both self-learning um, instead of maybe formal education. So that's something that I like to talk about. And your new book is about rapid learning. But first, let's talk about like where'd you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Yeah, I grew up in a very small town uh, called New London in, in northern Ohio. Where if, if you can imagine the quintessential uh, northern Ohio one stoplight town mm -hmm. that is surrounded by corn and soybean fields, mm -hmm. like that is New London. There's nothing <laughs> there. Uh, wonderful place to grow up. But it was it was also the, the kind of place where uh, there's not a whole lot of entertainment. And so you uh, you entertain yourself. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that that's where I started reading at a very early age. And that was part of the reason why it was it was a great form of entertainment. And then um, I also became interested in, in learning lots of, of new things, jumping into a new subject and, and learning as much as I possibly could uh, about it. And, you know, that, that, was, that was something I started doing at a very early age and I just kept doing over time. And uh, it's fun. It's fun to learn new things. And so where did you then go to college and what did you study when you were in college? Yeah, How did I, you choose I, something when you had all these different interests? Yeah, I, I, uh, I chose a college major kind of like, every 18 year old chooses a college major, right? It's, it's, uh, what are you good, good at doing? And mm -hmm. what do you think is, is going to, to make you at least reasonably successful in life? Right. Mm -hmm. So, so the entire decision-making process was I'm good with computers. Engineering pays well. So I'm going to be a uh, computer engineer. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I got down, I went to the university of Cincinnati and, uh, entered the engineering program and went through the first year and realized that I hated, <laughs> hated engineering. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was really interested in technology and really interested in what technology can do for people. Uh, so my, the rest of my college career, I, I transferred over to the business school and uh, studied business information systems. So less, you know, let's design a processor today and more how do we use technology to solve a problem that people have in the real world mm -hmm. in a way that gives them a benefit. So yeah, I mean, I, I started uh, in technology doing really geeky things like uh, Microsoft Exchange server configuration. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I actually, I got a job in the IT department at Procter & Gamble and uh, started working online. So a lot of the early things that uh, PNG was doing to uh, market their brands online, uh, I was the guy uh, in the background making that technically happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, I got exposed to the wonderful world of 
big brand marketing and uh, found myself, I, I spent a couple of years as an assistant brand manager doing product development uh, for soap, uh, our, our home care brands, which, which is actually way more exciting than it sounds. Um, so I, one of the things that I did in, in my first brand assignment was work with the, the engineer uh, or the inventor, the guy who created Swiffer was my colleague and we were looking at the technology that was available and, and coming up with new products, uh, which was pretty fun. And so how did you transition from that into starting the personal MBA blog and writing about business books? Yeah, the, uh, the personal MBA started as a side project because, you know, I started working at Procter & Gamble as, as an intern. Uh, so my second year of college, I started working for, for P&G halftime. And when I was, was offered the role in marketing, uh, it was really exciting because it, it was something that uh, the most direct path into brand marketing at Procter & Gamble is graduating from a top 10 business school. So going into this job, you know, right after graduation, I was going to be working with people who had graduated from Harvard and Stanford and Wharton and mm -hmm. all of these, these really high-powered business schools. And for me, at, at that point in my life, it was really intimidating. You know, I thought they knew something, they had some body of knowledge or an, an experience that I didn't. And so it didn't make sense for me to quit my job and go to school and borrow a bunch of money to come back to this job that I already had. I just wanted to know the stuff. And so uh, I went to the library and I, I went to Barnes and Noble mm -hmm. and, and uh, made a, a good effort to read pretty much every book on those shelves. And so it was, it was out of a, you know, an insecurity almost of feeling like you didn't learn enough in college compared yeah, to these it, other people. I think it was half insecurity. Like mm -hmm. I, there's, there's things that I think other people know that I don't feel that I know yet. The other half was just curiosity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just being, you know, getting exposure to the world of business for the first time in my life. You know, as, as I said, in new London, there's really not much of anything. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so entering this, this, business world for the first time, I was really curious. It was, it was something that I was fascinated by. And so I wanted to learn at a very deep level how it all worked. And the way that I went about doing that is, is both working in my job and then reading all of these books, trying to pick out what makes, what are the parts of every business and what makes a business successful versus not very successful. Mm -hmm. And how long into starting the personal MBA before you kind of had this long-term goal of what you wanted it to be? It was a very uh, developmental process. I'll put, I'll put it that way. So at first, you know, I was, I was reading all of these books and, and, and looking at all these resources, and I really wanted a guide. Mm -hmm. So something that would tell me, okay, if you want to learn business, you should read these books first because they're the best. They'll teach you the most. Mm -hmm. And so I went. this would have been 2003, 2004 at the time. And I went online, and there was just, there was nothing. Um, yeah, you could find book reviews or or recommendations here and there, but there wasn't this this resource like this is how you learn how businesses work. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing a lot of reading and research at the time. I was like, well, if it doesn't exist, I should make it. And so personal MBA or personalmba.com uh, just became the website where I was doing all this research research uh, research and and posting the resources that I found the most valuable. And so the entire project was basically this, this very geeky side venture that I was doing for myself that 
uh, once I posted it online, uh, lo and behold, lots of other people around the world found it useful too. And it just kept growing from there. And so was your, was your main goal maybe to democratize this education or, you know, make a resource for people that couldn't afford an MBA? Cause an MBA is typically a fairly expensive degree. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. It, it was one of the things that, you know, realizing that pretty much regardless of whatever you do in, in society today, understanding at a very deep level how businesses work is tremendously valuable for everyone. Uh, so there's the certain sense like this is a skill or this is a body of knowledge that every single person in the world can benefit from having more of. But the most direct path to, to getting there, uh, at least at the time, was enrolling in an MBA program, which at minimum is is at least a few tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a top program, you can easily be out between uh, tuition costs, uh, living expenses, and the opportunity cost of not working for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. That investment can easily stretch into the two to three hundred thousand dollar range, mm -hmm. which, from my perspective, is insane. Right. Like just just insane. And so, if there's a way of learning what you need to learn without borrowing that much money, um, then that's a really good thing. And so I designed Personal MBA to, to make it possible for people to really learn how businesses work without that level of debt. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I went and I got a traditional MBA, but at the same time, I was learning about entrepreneurship. I was reading business books outside of class. And, you know, I almost felt I was learning just as much, if not more, from actually doing. Yeah. And and there's only so much you can learn from reading, but at the same time, I think that's a vital piece that a lot of people, um, they kind of skip over. Or if they're reading, it's, you know, it's stuff online that is maybe not from experts that have been doing something for 20 years. So one thing I really like about your list that you have is you break it into categories. And so, you know, what, what would like an early entrepreneur really want to focus on? Because there's so many right. different things you can focus on a business. What's like one or two categories that someone that's just just starting out should focus on? Right. Yeah. I, I the the big thing, you know, going back to to how MBA programs are are structured, they don't really teach you how to run a business. They teach you how to be a mental manager at a very large company, mm -hmm. which is a very very different set of skills. It's a very very different set of knowledge. And so understanding, you know, as, as an entrepreneur or somebody who is interested in starting a business at some point, the things that you need to know and the things you need to focus on are completely different. Mm -hmm. So, for example, what is a business and what are the different parts and how do they work and how do they fit together? That's something that's really critically important for a beginning entrepreneur to understand. Because if you don't understand the fundamental parts of the business, you're probably going to skip something important mm -hmm. and you can't afford to do that. You know, versus if you're a middle manager at a company, you may be exposed to only some very small subsegment of what the business actually does, but that's enough. Uh, so I really try to focus on, for beginning entrepreneurs, helping them understand that businesses create value, they market it to prospects, they sell what they produce, they deliver it in a way that makes the customer happy, and then they analyze how much money they're, they're making and how much they're spending in order to make sure they're bringing in more money than they're spending, mm -hmm. and it's worth it, worthwhile to keep going. And so and when, do you recommend an MBA to certain kinds of people? I think that if you're the type of person who really, for whatever reason, uh, wants to become an investment banker at Goldman Sachs and nothing else is going to make you happy in your entire life, 
then yeah, go to Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, if you want to have a successful, fulfilling career, uh, if you want to work on your own terms instead of being beholden to a company, or if you want to start your own business someday, it's in your best interest to learn what you need to know on your own and skip business school. Mm -hmm. And so some people like kind of rush through their process of figuring out what they want to write their first book about or their first product about. How long was it between when you started Personal MBA to, you know, getting a book deal or even thinking about writing a book and making a book out of it? Yeah. So the reading, the reading for Personal MBA started even before it had developed as, as a, a project in my mind around like late 2002. And so I kept reading the personal MBA became a project officially in 2005. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 2009 when I even thought about it being a book. Um, so, you know, there, there were seven to eight years of just solid research mm -hmm. um, and, and developing personalmba.com before I felt I had enough information to really sift through and understand what are the fundamentals and how to put it together in, in a way that other people can use it. And the, uh, the book, you know, funny story, the book was accidental. I didn't actually set about doing this research in, in order to do a book. I happened to meet uh, the head publisher of Penguin Portfolio at a conference in New York City. And, and we got to talking and, and he said, you should probably write me a book proposal. This is interesting. Like, really? I, I had never, you know, thought, I, I figured I, I might put together a course or a training program or something someday, but I didn't intentionally set out to become an author. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he invited me to send him a proposal, it's like, okay, there's, there's something here. Let's, let's take a look. And, um, and it worked. And, and, you know, the, the book has been out for what, two and a half years now and uh, has, has sold in, in the, the area of 130,000 copies worldwide. So mm -hmm. there's definitely something here that people are responding to. And what are some of the biggest keys for the success of your book? Was it connections? Was it branding? What, what was the main key there? I think the, the biggest thing is, first and foremost, it's designed to be a book that's useful to people. And so it was, you know, when, when the book came out, um, you know, the, the early launch was, was good and it, it was perceived as a success, but it wasn't a blockbuster, uh, mm -hmm. by any means. Um, what ended up happening is people would read it and find it valuable and start putting it to work and they would start seeing results in their business or in their career. And so, you know, now the book has been out long enough that people are telling other people about the book and the book is actually more successful on a day-to-day -day basis now than it was when it launched two and a half years ago. Interesting. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of that I, I, I think was, was putting in the time and putting in the work to, to make a solid product. Um, the other thing that, that I really try to focus on is, you know, with a lot of books, there's a lot of promotion when the book first comes out, right? You have that big burst of launch marketing mm -hmm. and then the book just dies. Because without that active ongoing promotion, there's, there's nothing spreading the word uh, about the book to people who could benefit from it. So every time uh, I take on a book project, whether it's Personal MBA or the new book I'm working on now, uh, the first 20 hours, I intentionally build it to have a long-term sustainable marketing plan that builds on itself. 
And so ideally, five years from now, both books will be doing better than they're doing today. Mm -hmm. And how, what is some of those, or what are some of those ongoing marketing efforts that you do? Yeah, there's, there's, um, so for a personal MBA, the, by far the biggest resource on the site is a list of uh, 99 of the best business books available, which was, you know, that was the result of all that research. You know, if you want to learn about business, go to this list, pick out a, a book in a category that, that you would find valuable and get started there. And, and you'll learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so instead of, you know, combing the shelves, trying to find a book for yourself, it's like, here's a list of two or three that you should probably start with mm -hmm. first. Uh, that single resource is responsible for about 60 to 70% of the traffic to personalmba.com. Mm -hmm. And when people find the personal MBA, uh, they also find a little message that says, if you want to get the most out of this reading, you should probably read this book first because it'll, it'll tell you everything you need to know about business, and then you can dive in, in the categories that, that would help you the most. Um, so res evergreen resources like that uh, are a, a very valuable way to establish a reputation and help a lot of people up front, and then do that in a way that brings attention to other resources or, or books or courses uh, that can help people who are helped by that one resource even more. Mm -hmm. And is, so your main focus right now on personal MBA and being an author in other books? Or are you working with companies kind of implementing these ideas and strategies? I've actually done both. So at the moment, uh, I am primarily a uh, researcher and, and writer. So I, I consider it my job to find areas of life that are both universally valuable and complex and intimidating and break them down and give people an approach to, to get better results in, in, in a much faster, more sustainable way. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, you know, for, for a number of years, uh, when I quit my job at Procter & Gamble, I uh, was a business advisor. And so I would help uh, primarily early stage entrepreneurs who, who are just at the idea stage. It's like, I have this business idea. I have no idea <laughs> what, what's necessary mm -hmm. or, or if it's going to work or if it's a good idea. And, and what I would do is help the entrepreneur or prospective entrepreneur break the idea down to understand what's really required and figure out how attractive is this idea really. And so in the process of doing that, uh, sometimes, you know, entrepreneurs have ideas, they're not necessarily good ones. So it's like, okay, there may be a kernel of something valuable there. How can you find something related that, that may be more valuable? And sometimes new companies are formed. And so one, one of my, uh, my, fa my favorite experiences as a business advisor was helping somebody flesh out an idea to the point where they could launch it, and it was a success. Or, you know, they would have an idea of how to improve their business, and then they would implement that change and see a positive result. That's the coolest stuff for me. And so, chronologically, you were working at Procter & Gamble. You yep. were building up personal NBA brand and the site and earning some income from it from Amazon affiliate sales and things like that. I'm yeah, assuming. very minimal. And then you launched your business consulting before your book came out, correct? That's that's right. So I was I was advising and writing at the same time because you had you, become like an expert in just business knowledge, and right. you were able to charge high enough rates that you could leave a comfortable position at Procter that's and Gamble, right. correct? Yeah, and I, I think one of the interesting things, and it, you can definitely see it in in the structure of the personal MBA. Um, there are a lot of people out there who, who 
teach about or write about business. Mm -hmm. But very few of those people have both the experience of working in one of the largest business structures that exist and working with, you know, starting one of the smallest micro ventures that exist, right? You know, mm -hmm. starting up in your garage with, with $100 kind of thing. And so that became one of the things that, that really informed the development of the personal MBA. You know, what, when, when you look at the largest companies in the world and the smallest companies in the world, what do you need to know to operate in either environment and do it successfully? So when you write or when you even wrote personal MBA or write stuff now, do you angle it so that it is approachable for both of those kinds of people? Absolutely. That's, that's a primary decision criteria. So is it going to be applicable for everybody regardless of what the business is? And the other thing that I really try to focus on is, is it evergreen? So is it going to be something that somebody can read 40 or 50 years from now and get and have it be just as valuable as it is today? So I don't write uh, about a lot of uh, trendy type topics. Mm -hmm. I don't write about uh, tools, current events or, or tools. Yeah. It's, it's, these are universal fundamentals that you really need to know. That's great. And, and so I want to transition now to your new book, uh, which I got an advanced copy of and read it. And it's really interesting. It's a, it's a take on, on rapid skill acquisition and yeah. you kind of break down this process, whether someone's trying to learn, you know, a new hobby or a skill or just something they're interested in trying. And, you know, this visual that you use in the book that I think is perfect is in the matrix when Neo like plugs in, he downloads yeah. like how to fly a helicopter or says, I know Kung Fu, you know, that kind of thing <laughs> is what people want. And, yes. you know, unfortunately we don't have that technology yet. Um, but like, what does rapid skill acquisition mean to you? And, and I know it's a loaded term, so I'd like to hear your take on it. Yeah, totally. No, man, I would really love to have the matrix. Like <laughs> if I could have anything in the world, like it would be that, um, I love learning new things and, and, and always have. And for me, you know, the process of, of being curious about something or, or wanting to develop skill in a certain area is both incredibly enticing because mm -hmm. there's a lot of curiosity there, but it's also really frustrating because those, those early hours of practice are super hard mm -hmm. and very frustrating universally. So everybody, when they decide to learn something new and they jump in, everybody sucks at the mm -hmm. beginning. And, you know, we... Gen generally as humans, we don't like to have that feeling of incompetence and insecurity. It feels really bad. Mm -hmm. So there's this natural barrier to learning something new. I call, it, call this the frustration barrier. And if you can practice long enough to break through that early frustration, you can get really, really good at things in very short periods of time. The problem is those early hours are so frustrating and so emotionally angsty that we tend to dabble if, if we get started at all, right? We may look at it and say, oh, that's too hard or I'm not good at that thing, right? And if we decide to dabble around a little bit, we just confirm our own worst fears, which is we're horrible. And so why keep going? Mm -hmm. And so for me, rapid skill acquisition is all about the process of deciding you're interested in learning something, approaching those early, those critical first early hours of practice as effectively as possible, so you can push through that early frustration and learn a tremendous amount in a very short period of time. Uh, pretty much all of the research that's been done in skill acquisition over the past, call it 60 or 70 years, and there's a lot of it, 
confirms that if we can get ourselves to actually sit down and practice, we learn things incredibly quickly. It's what our brains are built to do. It's that getting that critical mass of early practice that's the hard part. And so one, one thing you talk about in the book is this fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about like just psycho psychologically like thinking that you can do something. I, I tweeted something like, I don't know, probably like a month ago that got reshared a bunch and it was something like the excuse, I don't know how, isn't an excuse anymore because of Google. Like because right. you can learn how to do yeah. something, you can search on YouTube and learn how to play guitar. Like that's not a valid excuse. I think it's it becomes I haven't tried. Right. You know, instead of right. I don't know how. Yeah. No, the 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 fixed and growth mindset research. There there's a a, a professor at Stanford, her name is uh, Dr. Carol Dweck, uh, wrote a really great book called called Mindset, where she talks about a lot of a lot of this research. And the, the general idea is that if you have a belief that your skills and abilities and talents are fixed, they're, they're, they're natural inclinations, you're either born with the ability to do something or you're not. It's a, it's a binary thing. If you believe that's how the human mind works, there's a tremendous tendency to maybe try something new. And if you're not good at it at first, you just mentally label that thing as, oh, I'm not good at that or I'm not talented at that, right? You see this a lot. Um, she, uh, Dr. Dweck did a lot of research with, with children in the, uh, the uh, public education system. And so you know, a lot of the examples would be like children who would mentally label themselves with a fixed mindset would try a difficult math problem and they wouldn't get it right. And they would say, oh, I'm not good at math. Mm -hmm. And they would stop working on it, right? They would stop trying. And children with a growth mindset would say, oh, I'm not good at that yet, but if I keep practicing, I'll be better at it. Mm -hmm. And so looking at, at your skills and abilities as not being fixed, the, the way Dr. Dweck puts this in mindset is, you know, having, having the mental model of your mind is a muscle. The more you use it, the more it grows. When they primed, uh, lots of studies, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders doing math problems. When they primed students with that type of knowledge and then they gave them a difficult math test, there was much higher rates of achievement because if they didn't get it right the first time, it's like, oh, I'm not good at that yet, but if I keep practicing, I will be. So they would keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they finally did it. Mm -hmm. So, and you could see this, you know, Dr. Dweck did, did a lot of studies where they would prime half of the class with a fixed mindset and they would prime half of the class with a growth mindset and they could see there was a statistically significant difference in scores over a period of time as the kids progressed in, in math. The folks who believed that they did not have natural math ability just stopped. Mm -hmm. Now, what's known from, from psychological research or cognitive science research is we are all we all have the capability to learn new skills over time every single person if you practice something you will get better at it and so the fixed mindset is is really very much a myth uh doesn't matter your what you believe are your natural uh born skills or talents or innate abilities if you practice something you will be much better at it over time Mm -hmm. And I think the key word there that you used a couple times is yet. Yes. You know, I can't do that yet, or I don't know how to yet. 
you know, and that that just little switch, if you can flip it, yep, encourages that growth mindset. And another problem I think people have is, you know, they read they read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and they have this ten thousand hour rule. Like, yep. I don't know how I'm going to put in a couple hours every day for I don't know five ten years to get right. really good at something. And and I love your approach of this book, where if you spend twenty hours, so not even that's like one hour a day each weekday for a month, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You can get pretty good at things. You can be better than 95, 99% of people at something. You know, 20 hours is almost enough that you can start charging to teach someone how to do something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean it's 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 amazing. The well, the vast majority of people, any given skill that that you're interested in, the vast majority of people in the world will never attempt to learn it. Period. Right? So just by trying, you're putting yourself in the top you know, 1% of 1% of 1%, right? Mm-hmm. And then the vast majority of people who try it never make it past the first one or two hours because it's frustrating. And so, yeah, I mean, 20 hours is, is enough to get a really good, solid body of practice to develop some very real skill and to see results from that. And so, you know, the, the 10,000 hour rule kind of drives me nuts. I mean, it's, it's, it's based on valid research. Uh, so there was a professor, Kay Anders Erickson at Florida State University, um, who did the, this, the, the original skill acquisition research that Malcolm Gladwell then took uh, in the book Outliers, which came out in 2008, and, and popularized this idea of the 10,000-hour rule. And when you look at the original research, it's really valid. And so, you know, you, you look at Dr. Erickson at that point was looking at like world-class violin players and professional golfers and, and people who are at the tippy top of ultra competitive, high performing fields. And wanted to answer this question, how long does it take to get there? Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be able to compete with Tiger Woods at golf, yeah, that's probably the order of magnitude of practice you're looking at. Now, so, so as far as it goes, that research is completely valid. The problem is when Outliers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell came out, people started repeating this 10,000 hour rule. And you know how the game of telephone happens. You tell mm-hmm. it to somebody and you tell it to somebody else. It changes and, and, a little bit, yeah. It, yeah, so we've, pay, we've played a game, a society-wide game of telephone with the 10,000 hour rule for what, five or six years now? Mm-hmm. And so it was like, it takes 10,000 hours to reach the top of ultra high performance competitive you know, fields, right? became it t- takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, which mm-hmm. became it takes 10,000 hours to become good at something, which mm-hmm. became it takes 10,000 hours to learn something, which is just way not true. Yeah. And it's even a it's even like a popular song right now by Macklemore. Have you heard that? No, 10, I haven't heard hours. this. Yeah. No. And he, he's a hip hop artist. He is famous for thrift shop, but he has a song called 10,000 hours. And it's about how much time he spent to get to where he is like rapping because he's been around forever but then he finally gets like a one-hit wonder and then he's popular and people are like oh it's overnight success and so it's kind of his rebuttal of that you know i've put in this effort i've put in this time to get here and he uses ten thousand hours because it's popular but yeah that's like interesting what Uh, what i don't like about the idea of the ten thousand hour rule you know now this this popular conception that it takes that long to to be good at something it's just one more barrier in the way of 
deciding for yourself that you're going to sit down and learn something, mm -hmm. right? So if you have this mistaken impression that it takes 10,000 hours to become any good at something whatsoever, it's like, well, why bother? I don't have that time. Um, very few of us have that time. I know one, one of the, um, one of the reasons I, I was interested in this topic in the first place was, uh, about 10 days before, uh, the personal MBA book came out, my daughter was born and all of a sudden, you know, I'm running a business. My wife is running a business. We have a newborn and I don't have four or five hours a day to sit down and dabble with things to, to figure it out. Mm -hmm. I may, if I'm lucky, have an hour of spare time every day. And so, you know, it's how do I, how for myself, since I like learning things, how do I invest that time as, as well as I possibly can? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you have the mistaken impression that it takes, you know, even a thousand hours to, to get any good at something you're interested in, that just becomes a barrier to sitting down and doing the work in the first place. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about effective learning, which is something you talk about in the book sure. and how learning is different than skill acquisition acquisition. So what are the differences for you? Yeah. So let's, um, let's use an example. One of the things that, that I was uh, curious about was learning how to program. So I, I do all of my work on the web. It would be tremendously valuable for me to actually write a program to do a lot of monotonous work for me. Mm -hmm. So because so many of us were educated in, in the public school system, there's a natural inclination to say, okay, I'm going to learn how to program. So let's go to the library or the bookstore and I'm going to get four or five books on how to program and I'm going to go through all of the books front to back and work through all of the tutorials and at the end I'm going to know how to program. That's not true. Um, what helps you actually learn how to program is sitting down and thinking of a program you want to write and then getting started working on mm -hmm. making that thing exist, right? That's the whole idea of deliberate practice that Kay Anders Erickson, uh, the, ten, the original 10,000 hours uh, researcher, came up with. You get better at a skill by sitting down and systematically practicing the elements of that that will make you better. Mm -hmm. Just flipping through a book is not going to help you sit down and actually do that work that improves the skill. That's not to say that learning about the skill isn't valuable. It's just different. Okay, so one of the... the 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 true value of learning is being exposed to concepts and resources that can help you do that original practice more efficiently, right? So if you sit down and read a programming book and you learn what a variable is or what a conditional loop is, uh, those types of concepts can help you when you're actually sitting down in front of your text editor writing a program, mm -hmm. that can help you write in a more efficient way. It helps you self-edit or self-correct as you practice. So one of the big things that, that I had to personally break myself of was the tendency to over-research, to over-read, to over-learn. Because taken far enough, that can become just a, a slightly different form of procrastination. It's it more comfortable to sit down and read a book than it is to sit down and practice the actual skill. Mm -hmm. So ideally, you want to learn just enough that helps you sit down and practice the skill in a way that it, that improves your capability to do the thing you want to do. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with just-in-time manufacturing. Yes. With lean lean manufacturing, but I always call it just-in-time learning. So yeah. I if I see a resource that's interesting, I'll bookmark it, great. I'll remember that it exists, but I exactly. try not to overlearn. I try not to just 
consume too much learning when I'm not currently doing that thing. Yeah. But the, you know, it's always available. You can always go back. Totally. And you can learn I, from there. I noticed a, a big failure mode for me in the process of, of all of these things. I could tell I was procrastinating when I would keep researching, or I would keep researching and finding and buying more books but I wasn't sitting down to actually practice. And so the books would keep piling up, but my skill level was, was remaining about the same. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I need to stop looking for new information. I need to sit down and figure out how, how this thing works. Yeah. And that reminds me of something that I'm even guilty of is reading about productivity. It's like, the, you know, like it's instead worst, of like right? doing stuff, you know, <laughs> but like, it's, it's interesting. Like it's interesting yeah. to read, getting things done. You know, it's interesting to, build systems and to plan and things like that. But at a certain point, you just have to start doing stuff. Yeah. And, you know, some of the things like, you know, you read getting things done and you understand the idea of a next action. Right. And by having that mental concept, by by having that mental model, when you're actually sitting down and doing things, you can ask yourself, is this a next action? And if not, what is? Mm -hmm. And that helps you actually self-correct your performance as you're doing things. Tremendously valuable. Um, so the trick is to jump in and do just enough research. And, and this is maybe an hour or two's worth of research before you start practicing to kind of get those basic ideas into your head. But beyond that point, you just need to sit down and do the work. So in that first 20 hours for each of the things that you tried, you did six in the book, you yep. would say an hour or two. So like five or 10% of the time yes. was spent actually learning and the rest was just practicing? Yeah, it, it varied based on the skill. Uh, so, so for example, uh, for a skill like yoga or windsurfing, yeah, anywhere between one and two hours of practice or one or two hours of research is pretty much all you need uh, to, to be comfortable getting started. For something like programming, um, actually, that was almost half of the time was research for a very specific reason. Um, and it just wasn't front loaded. It was like, you would research for an hour and then you go work for an hour and then you come back and research and exactly. it was throughout yeah. as opposed to throughout front loading all of that. Yeah. And, and, and the reason, you know, that was a little bit different for programming is sometimes there are tools or circumstances or environments that you need to have in order to practice. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so the, a basic example, if you want to learn how to windsurf, if you don't have a board and a sail, you're not going to get very far. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's or if a, you live a, in Iowa. Or if you live in Iowa and there's no water, like environmental condition. Um, so you don't need to do a lot of research, but sometimes you need to, to get some tools. Uh, for programming, I needed to figure out how to install Ruby on my computer, which was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be at first. And so, you know, it's they like, make you earn it. They, make you they do. It's like, you know, you, you, there, there are a lot of hoops to jump through just to get to the point where you can run a program and it will do something. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it varies on the skill. But yeah, you know, for that kind of thing, it's like, okay, let's break down the skill into component parts. I need to have Ruby installed on my computer before I can program. How do I do that? So you do a little bit of research saying, okay, this is what I need to do. Go off and do it. Maybe it would work or maybe it didn't. When it didn't work, I would just go back to do some research. Like, how do I do this thing? Uh, which is a way different research experience than picking up a random book about Ruby programming and trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think is the biggest mistake for people that try to pick up a new skill or try to learn something? I think that the, the biggest mistake is treating certain skills as one big skill 
instead of recognizing that it's a bundle of related, much smaller subskills. Okay. So uh, let's let's take a a sports example like golf, for example. You can say, I want to be a good golfer, right? I want to have the skill of golfing. But when you really look at it, there is no such thing as golf as a skill. It's like you can drive off the tee, you can putt, you can uh, chip out of a bunker. You, there, there are all sorts of much smaller subskills that are all wrapped up in this label of being a good golfer, mm-hmm. right? And so when you go about trying to learn that big skill all at once, that's where it becomes really intimidating because it feels like you have 5,000 things you need to learn how to do all at once. Mm-hmm. And so the best thing that you can do is, is when you're interested in, in learning a skill, do a little bit of research to figure out, okay, what are the component parts of this thing? And what are the, the, the parts that appear to be most important? So when I, learned, when I was uh, in the process of learning how to play the ukulele, there are a billion things that you, you, you could yeah. feasibly learn about, about playing, but really two were most important. How do you play a chord? So what do you do with your left hand? Uh, how do you uh, keep a strumming pattern going? So what do you do with your right hand? And how do you string an ukulele and keep it in tune so it sounds halfway decent? Mm-hmm. And so instead of this big composite, learn how to play the ukulele, I had three very specific things to learn. Tune and, uh, string and tune the ukulele, uh, learn a few chords and and learn a basic strumming pattern. And by breaking it down in that way, it was much easier to sit down and practice in a way that that helped me improve. No, I love that. Um, you know, I, I'm as you're saying that I'm thinking about like all the different skills that I want to learn like in the next couple of years, and I'm already like breaking them down into the different yeah the different categories that you I'm need curious to... what what do you want to learn? Well, I have a guitar sitting back there Sweet. that I've had yeah. for many years, and it's that, okay, if I'm gonna learn how to play guitar, like how far do I want to get? You like kind of right. have to have that end goal in mind too when you're picking up a skill. Yeah. And and then it's like ongoing things like video production and learning about audio production and um and writing better and so there's like all those different skills that you can learn and then you need to break them down even further. Yeah. Cuz otherwise you can get really overwhelmed. So I'm going to put you on the spot here with my last question. You've yeah, read sure. I don't know how many business books. A couple hundred probably you'd that- say. Thousands. Thousands. Okay. Yeah. And you've already got it down to 99. I'm going to have you get it down to one book <laughs> for someone that's in their first year of being an entrepreneur, whether they've made the leap or they're looking forward to it. What's that one book other than yours? I'll other than mine. Disqualify your own book because okay. I'll already be recommending that one. I was, yeah. I, aside from mine, which which is designed for that. It's designed for that person, yeah. Circumstance, right? Um, there would be, you can go above one if you want. I'll, I'll let yeah. it slide. Yeah. Let me, um, I would, I would say there, there are a couple, ide- the first thing that you can do that is always valuable is being able to break down an idea and evaluate it to see if it works. So mm-hmm. for any entrepreneur, you know, we, we all kind of have shiny object syndrome, in a way, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh, that's an interesting idea. And that's an interesting idea. And that's mm-hmm. an interesting. And if you don't have a framework to, to break that down and understand it and test it, uh, that can be actually be a really dangerous situation. So you're going to recommend making ideas happen? Uh, no, actually. I will recommend uh, a couple things. The Lean Startup by Eric Reese, mm-hmm. which is a really good basic process of 
forming a testable hypothesis and then going out into the world to collect information of, on whether or not it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I would recommend, let me see, two additional books, actually. One is uh, Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got by Jay Abraham, which helps you really figure out how to get attention and build this idea up into something that's going to be sustainable long-term or be, be worth your while. Mm-hmm. And then I would also recommend, let's say, The Ultimate Sales Machine by Chet Holmes. Okay. So one of the things that particularly early entrepreneurs are very uncomfortable and don't have developed skills in are prospecting and going through a sustainable sales process. And so figuring out what that part of the business looks like is super, super important. And the earlier you can start thinking along those terms and being comfortable with the idea of going out and selling, the more successful you'll be. Well, just just knowing that like through my business background and my wife not having one with her starting her business, sales was one of those words that yeah. was so loaded, you know, vacuum, door-to-door salesman, I don't know, used car, like all that. It's like a loaded, yeah, it's a loaded idea. And so reading about it in this book, which I have heard a lot of people recommend as well, is a great way to like kind of break down that barrier and that intimidation behind sales. Yeah. And, you know, it it really helps to think about, you know, as a as a business person, the whole game is going out into the world and understanding that people out there have a problem or they have a need. And they those problems or needs are something that you are in a position to help them with. Right. So if you can go and talk to a person that has a really big problem and you can remove that problem for them, they're going to be absolutely thrilled that you are are discussing it with them. Right. Mm -hmm. And helping another person understand what it is that you do, why it's valuable and how it can solve a problem for them. That's all that sales is. Right. You go, you're going out talking to people and hopefully in a way that makes them interested in continuing the conversation. That's marketing. And then you help them understand that you are able to deliver in a way that causes them to pull out their wallet, checkbook, credit card, and buy it. That's mm-hmm. sales. That's it. It, it. It's not any more complicated or any more intimidating than that. Mm-hmm. And when, so when you, when you really kind of fully grok in your own mind em- emotionally that you're just going out and helping other people solve problems, it becomes much, much easier to have sales conversations. Awesome. Well, we covered... We seriously covered a ton of stuff. We covered like <laughs> business foundation, your background, rapid learning, what books people should read. So thanks for joining me today, Josh. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, take care. You too. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Cubicle Renegade podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh Kaufman. I really love what he's up to, especially the personal MBA stuff. But even now with this rapid learning, it makes me want to you know, pick up hobbies that I've always wanted to try, like guitar or get really into surfing or something random you know we mentioned a lot of things in this episode so go ahead and check out the show notes at cubiclerenegade.com see you next time thanks for listening to the pocket changed cubicle renegade podcast at www.pocketchanged.com to read this episode's show notes or check out other sessions head over to cubiclerenegade.com 